Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Dash Masterclass. Resolve Rips, Bradley Berry and Matt O'Brien join us today, and they say no man should fear any market. So no man should fear any market, Brad. What do you mean? Tell us more. Yeah, thanks again for having us again. It's a, it's a pleasure and it's an honor. So we don't think people should fear the market. We think people should prepare for the market regardless of what happens. We're not big on predicting. We don't have a crystal ball. For those that watched the uh, the last Resolve Rift that I was on, I I mentioned that occasionally some people call me and, and ask, what's Jerome Powell going to do? And I, I jokingly said, you guys might remember, I said, oh, I know Jerome Powell. He's, I actually call him once a week and he's yet to answer my call. That was the, the punchline, the joke, but uh, it's it's a silly question, right? Like today's a, 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 a core example, right? Jerome Powell talked today. I know this is being recorded on Thursday and aired on Friday, but uh, Jay Paul talked today. And if you track the market today, it was up, down, up, down. And, and I think we finished down, right? So it's a matter of even if you predicted what Jay Powell was going to say, could you predict how the market was going to react to what Jay Powell said? And we think the much better approach is you prepare by having appropriately diversified investments in portfolios. And that means utilizing alternatives. It means, as you show on one of your websites, the two-legged stool is sadly a solution that a lot of investors and a lot of advisors have followed. And it's worked for quite a while until it doesn't, right? And we believe in true diversification. We believe in preparing and not being afraid of, of the market. And if anything, that lets you take advantage of opportunities as they transpire. So I'm not into today. And, and now to prevention's worth a pound of cure, as they say. So how do you think through the actual diversity? So I, I always prefer to a bit of a three-step process, which is thinking about what are your diversifiers? So you've got asset classes that can diversify, You've got strategies that can diversify. You've got to think about how you would appropriately balance those and then how you might rebalance those. And then how do those respond in various liquidity cascades or crunches? 
So how do you guys think through that as an OCIO in constructing a portfolio, thinking through the layers of potential diversifiers that you have, how they might come to inject different return streams and opportunities? Like, how do you think about that from start to beginning? Let's try and give folks step one, asset classes, step two, strategies, maybe, or share with me your protocol. Yeah, I think, and, and Matt, Matt can jump in too. I think it starts with our philosophy, right? Everything starts with an overarching philosophy. And we believe having not just asset classes, that's where a lot of folks only look at is the asset class. And one of our other team members, partners worked for NASA for a period of time. And he tells a great story about working at NASA and solving the right problems. And if you, I don't think I told this story last time, but Back when the space race was going on and they were trying to figure out how to get men up to space and men back down to space, they were trying to figure out how do you make this capsule that comes back down to space indestructible, right? They make make this capsule that comes back into space, through space, back to Earth, indestructible. And NASA scientists, they couldn't figure it out. They, they just couldn't create indestructible material to, to go through the heat. I The way I tell the story, I say some guy in the back of the room raises his hand, says, hey, wait a minute. We're solving the wrong problem. We don't need to create an indestructible material. We need to create a material, or, or not even that, it's we need to get the, the astronauts back alive. So that's the problem, not creating an indestructible material. So then yeah, what they asking a different is, question, attacking the problem from a different angle. Exactly. Right. They were asking the wrong question. They were solving the wrong problem. So what they did was they created a, 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 a bladed material that would basically self-sacrifice and it would land back and it would last long enough to keep the astronauts alive. We think asset allocation, investing model portfolios is the same thing, right? It's not a matter of what's the best stock, what's the best bond, what's the best stock manager, what's the best bond manager. That can certainly play a role in it, but it's also what what are the diversifiers, right? Asset classes is one, strategies is another, methodology is another. Do you follow a quant methodology and let algos solve everything? Do you use a fundamental approach and just use hunches or use fundamental research or do you use technical analysis with moving averages and Fibonacci's and everything else? Our approach is multidimensional. That's what we've coined it because we don't believe one, one thing has the answer all the time, right? I like to tell the story that fundamental managers can be early to the party and quant managers can be late to the party, right? Because the quant needs all the data in there first and crunch it and then realize what to do. And your fundamental manager can go by hunch sometimes or they look at the research or tell the Peter Lynch story when he walked into Walmart 40 years ago and said, hey, this store's got something going on, right? And bought Walmart stock. Quant manager back then probably wouldn't have done that. Quant manager back 40 years ago was also probably working on like a... 386 PC or something. <laughs> Let's iPhone. hope we had the math coprocessor. Let's hope so. <laughs> but I, I, back to your question, Mike, about asset classes, right? Like, yeah. I, we think when we're thinking about just diversifying at the asset class level, like you're really just having a banded discussion, right? And you're not, you're, you're just saying, I'm just going to take pure banding at these asset classes. Average, I assume these correlations hold. And I think one of the things that, that's been troubling the last couple of years for a lot of people that have been invested in 6040 is that. The correlations between stocks and bonds haven't held from what they've been for the last 10 years, right? So we can't just rely on what correlations have been because, you know, based on the regime, if you're high growth, 
high inflation, high growth, low inflation, low growth, low inflation, whatever might have a difference for those correlations. And that's taking out any idiosyncratic things that might happen in the, in the meantime. So when we're it's almost as much strategy and philosophy of the investor, and I think earlier, we think of them as return streams, because a high yield, there's two high yield funds we can use. One, which nothing like a high yield whatsoever, because they're buying cigarette butts and just taking the last couple of coupons off and getting that steady carry. Another one that's very tactical and that's in and out of the market, right? So those are two very different, in the same asset class and have very different risk reward profiles. To us, as long as we can have those low correlations to each other, provide some correlational benefit and have some positive long-term returns or prospects for positive returns, it's all additive to us. So we try not to take a position. And that's why you know, what we were talking about earlier, try and predict, we try and prepare. Being prepared for high inflation for the last 15 years, hasn't. it can be painful at times. And it, there is sometimes some a cost to some of this stuff, but we think that's a small price to pay for avoiding being blindsided by the last three years of underperformance of bonds, right? It had happened before three straight years, negative, until it does, and you're completely taken aside. So if it's duration is great, activity is fine, but to Brad, what Brad said earlier, when the only thing you've got is equity risk and you know duration risk in your portfolio, there are times when those are correlated and you're going to feel pain. So it's beyond just the asset class. It's looking at the strategy, understanding how they relate to each other and building those together. It's a little bit of the, the grandmother tasting the sauce, right? You're, you look at it a little bit, you see how two things work together and try and build the, I guess, the most, where you've got all your horses pulling in the same direction, even though they're doing it in very different ways. I like what you're saying in terms of, I think we're circling the drain around the big question here. And so I wonder if we can pause and maybe st take a step back, because I know that we're going to touch on a bunch of aspects of the strategy that you guys just launched and talk about some of the other strategies that you guys bring into your models and how you attack that problem. But maybe it's useful for us yes. to take a step back and say, what problem are you guys actually trying to solve? I think it's a similar problem to what we at Resolve are trying to do with our strategies, but it's useful to maybe frame the problem for the listeners here and anyone who's coming into this with fresh eyes and who hasn't necessarily bought into the idea that they should be doing something differently from their stock bond portfolio, but rather we can talk about the scenario as you guys see it and why it's important for, for people to be thinking outside the box, to be taking this multi-dimensional approach and embracing some fresh thinking on the problem. So maybe Matt, yeah, yeah. Brad, whoever can frame the problem yeah, for us. And this is that we bring to what we do in, in our experiences as both an OCIO and, and now portfolio manager for a mutual fund. I talked more about it at the previous uh, podcast I did with you guys, but I, I spent 20 years as a financial advisor sitting across the table from investors, from retail investors, individual mom and pops, wonderful people. And risk viewed by an investor is completely, I shouldn't say completely, but is a different version of risk versus a in a, in, in a tower with four monitors around them, right? So the problem we try to solve is how do you get to a smoother return experience, right? It's we're, we're, everybody would love to maximize returns, but sometimes that means you're on a roller coaster. So what we attempt to do is to create the smoothest return experience possible because that's how investors will stay invested and it'll be a more pleasurable experience with the investor and thus the advisor as well. So we're trying to really minimize the drawdowns. The down. One of the things that, that I'll 
beat the drum forever on. And again, I think that a lot of folks miss miss the wrong question again is risk, right? It's I, I say all the time, standard deviation is not a measure of risk. It's how our industry defines risk, but standard deviation is a measure of total deviation, right? And in, in 20 years of managing money for clients, I never once met a client that didn't want deviation on the upside, right? Everybody wants deviation on the downside, not on, on the upside. They don't want deviation on the downside. So investors want deviation on the upside. So why do we measure total standard deviation? It doesn't make sense. So we break it down between gain deviation and loss deviation and attempt to minimize loss deviation through the use of non-correlated investments, multiple strategies that can be complementary towards each other. Matt was talking about the bond market and bond market as a diversifier the last three years, it, it hasn't really worked, right? Correlation has been so strong. And we talk about beer, no market, right? We're near Halloween. And if, if you want to get scared, look at the bond market this year. And it's so GLP. funny. Because, yeah, it's, it's so funny because at the end of last year, everything I was hearing was, Oh, the bond market. Now's the time to buy bonds because bonds have never been down for three years in a row. And it's like, and I've heard someone else say stuff that has never happened happens every day. Right. And if you look at the bond market this year, the market's not over and bonds could still end up up. But you look at the volatility of bonds and anyone out there, we have charts of it. But if you look at just the daily change of bond index this year, it's seesaw. The market, the bonds were up 4% in January, down 4% in February, up 2.5% in March, bumpy flat, right? And, and if you're watching this and, and looking at the numbers, don't hold me to all those numbers exactly, right? <laughs> this is just estimates, but it's been anything but conservative. And that's not what investors really want. And we think you can reduce risk and with more than just two asset classes. And in the long run, benefit from that diversification. And when we talk about the mutual fund and the strategy behind that, our firm is named Dynamic Alpha Solutions as the OCIO, where Dynamic Wealth Group is the main parent company. And the fund is called Dynamic Alpha Macro Fund. And Dynamic Alpha is our version of, of rebalancing alpha that, that you guys I know have talked about, right? Being dynamic and being able to balance, rebalance between the two and thus create the alpha to reduce the risk. That's what we strive to do in our fund as well as the OCIO. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, no, I hate to interrupt because we're getting down the rabbit hole and I just want to go back to the, the question there, right? Like, just to summarize what Brad's saying like at the front end is like, so much of our industry and the series that I've dealt with over the years right, is so focused on relative return to the indices and what really at the end of the day, their number one goal should be is helping their clients achieve their goals. A part of that is being competitive so they stick with you and they're not, coached by someone else that's pitching better returns, better downside, whatever it might be, right? So what we want to try and do with these diversified portfolios is narrow the range of outcomes, right? Eliminate those big down years that could potentially blow up a financial plan. And if the cost of that's a little bit of the upside, that's fine as long as we're able to achieve the goals of the client, whether that's a 7% growth rate they need for their 401k to grow over the next 15 years or 20 years to get them where they need to be, whether that's if they're in their income phase, where they're taking out and making sure we're achieving the 4 or 5% they need to replenish their draw. That's really what we're trying to solve is how do we allow advisors to build portfolios that really can be robust in any type of market environment? And look, Brad said it, the unknown can happen at any time. And we have a limited set of tools that we have at our use, right? In the public, we primarily deal in the public investment markets. There's more certainly in certainly private markets, but 
we can prepare for as much we can prepare for a lot of different environments that have historically brought themselves to bear on client portfolios with the tools that we have and that's really what we're trying to do at the end of the day so it's just taking that range of outcomes from here and just narrowing it down a little bit so that it's a more manageable return stream for the client yeah and i i have a quote on that that i want to take full credit for it because the future holds what the past is yet to reveal that happens over and over again. That is me. <laughs> Just so we're clear, I don't want any ambiguity. I didn't steal it from anybody. I lived it, and then I figured out words to articulate it. It doesn't have a lot of fat. It summarizes it. We experience it every day. The future holds what the past is yet to reveal, and that is in every form of innovation possible. It's every form of surprise possible. Things are happening on a regular basis that haven't happened before. The fact that we have negative returns in a five-year on bonds hasn't happened before. Doesn't mean it was never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's just, that's the preparation over prediction. And yeah, easy. It's not easy. Let, let's think about capital allocation between stocks and bonds of 50-50. Does that equate the risk? What about inflationary periods? And by the way, that was a rhetorical question. No, it does not equate the risk. If we wanted to equate the risk, we'd put 15% in stocks and 85% in bonds. That would equate the risk. But even that ratio changes regularly. But what if we wanted to add a third asset class and we wanted to maximize the diversification opportunity of these three bodies? It's a three-body problem. It's not solvable. It's only dynamically solvable based on the observations we're having in the current moment. Most people are like, oh, it's too complicated, can't do it. Then suffer the slings and arrows of large, prolonged drawdowns, suffer the slings and arrows of how that affects the withdrawal rate and sustainability of the withdrawal rate if you're an individual or an endowment or anyone who has a portfolio in decumulation. It's easy. You're going to eat the lower distributions of the portfolio, the lower lifestyle, the lower funding of educational programs. And it seems to be okay when we eat it ourselves, but it's not if we're going to hold ourselves to a fiduciary standard, which means that we as OCIOs are capable of and understand these processes and more and should be trusted in a fiduciary role. We put these forward, but it's funny how boards will reject them. I think benchmarking is an extremely dangerous, ubiquitous thing that impacts all people. These are really hard problems. And I lay this at your at our feet to try and help people understand that the problem's not easy. And when it seems like you've got a dynamic, complex problem like this solved, you should realize immediately that you should have you have yeah. some challenges, right? How yeah, do you I help mean, people with this? Yeah, you said a few things that resonate so so strongly, I think. First off, you're right. Volatility when you're accumulating money is actually helpful to you. But when you're in the distribution phase of life, volatility can totally destroy you, right? So having more diversification during that distribution phase is crucial, especially now with inflation being higher, right? And the other thing that benchmarking, we could probably spend four hours just on benchmarking. And again, from a retail investor standpoint, which is what 20 years of my experience is, is Benchmarking is done and everybody benchmarks to either the SE or the, or the aggregate bond index and track those two things. But 
And I know I talked about this in the last podcast, absolute return versus relative return. A very important concept for investors and advisors to understand because if you're targeting a relative return and you lose 20% when the market loses 21%, you might be ringing the bell thinking you did a fantastic job. If you're a large cap core manager and that's your bogey, but your end investors are not happy losing 20 minutes, right? They want to have the manager to have flexibility and to be able to be different, right? And Matt and I were talking about this earlier today, and there was there was a presentation we saw a number of months ago, and it was about alternative. And the person doing the presentation basically said, the risk of doing alternatives is your tracking error is going to be is going to be bad. And you don't want a bad tracking error, so you don't want to use alternatives. And I sat there scratching my head saying, so what are you talking about? You don't want diversification? It's If your tracking error is to track the S&P or track a 60-40, just buy the 60-40. It's pretty simple, right? But, I'll but, take tracking error against the 60-40 over the last two years. <laughs> but think about the last 40 years and, yeah, and how long. Right. And then you had a year like 2022 when it was like what most alternative managers would have thought would have been the staple year to prove the point. It really was a proof of concept. And you start 2023 with mega cap ripping back higher, although the yeah. 40 portion of the portfolio is down, the 60 portion, especially if it's market cap weight, it's ripping back up. So people are like, eh, maybe 2022 was just a one-off. Maybe we don't need to really right. wonder about that. So I wonder, can you guys explain a little bit how the conversations with clients go? I would imagine to some degree, some of the clients that you guys have come to you because they embrace your investment approach, but I'm sure you guys have also to engage with clients that don't necessarily, maybe they don't want to do the homework, or maybe they're at the very high level, they know stocks, they know bonds, but they don't really know about alternatives. They don't really understand that they might need them. How do some of those conversations go? And, and what are some of the sticking points that you guys tend to face in those conversations? So I, I think you brought up a couple of things there. And it's, so the conversations go well. A, a lot of advisors at a high level are, are comfortable with the story, right? The story is we're going to give up a little bit of upside to make sure we're protecting on the downside. And so whether that's because they've been using some sort of tactical rotation strategy or they've been using some option strategy or some other hedging strategy inside their portfolio, like, the high level story works, right? It's, it's not foreign to them. The way we implement it may be foreign to them. And so sometimes that takes some handholding and, and our approach is we're, we're not crazy. We have a passive core that's cheap, easy beta access to stuff. And then we surround that by either high active share traditional asset classes or a whole bunch of alternative asset classes or return streams as we look at them from different strategies. I, I come from like a value methodology. That's how I came up in the business. I came up in those six through nine, my formative education in the business. And I'd looked at alternatives at the time as just commoditized, managed futures is all the same. Like, it, And the last few years of digging in there, you really realize how disparate the this catch-all category of alternatives we've created is. And understanding that one guy runs a managed futures in X and, and you guys have done a lot of good stuff on this. And I've heard a lot of people in this sort of ecosystem. Uh, I think Andrew was on with uh, Corey not too recently talking about differences and a couple of different managed future strategies. I think he and uh, I forget the other gentleman's name run, but it, it's been such a learning curve, right? You, you can't necessarily compare apples to apples. You need to really understand what's going on below the surface or you just take it as return stream. You look at that return stream, you analyze it, and you see what's what you think is most likely, how it'll fit best with what's else in your, what else is in your portfolio. So I think the implementation is tougher. And I think one of the things where we have a lot of traction is 
with advisors who have taken out the line item discussions, right? They don't really talk to their clients so much about each of the individual positions in their portfolio. That's like an old brokerage way of doing things, right? It's because I got to sell something in the portfolio to buy something new so I can generate that commission and keep on chugging, right? If we're looking at it on an advisory basis and in the RIA world, like at the end of the day, what matters is what overall the portfolio did and how that's helping the client get where they need to be. So as the, if, if the advisor can keep those conversations at that level, it's a huge boon. And we're lucky. We work with a handful of groups and they're at that point with their clients where they built that level of trust and they are good there. And I think that's where I've seen these types of strategies fall apart is because if you're looking individual and going through every line item in the portfolio, eventually it's likely that some of these alternatives will be underperforming at one time or another. And that's by design. If everything's going up at once, you're really not all that diversified. You, you can't. Precisely. We, we want to make sure that, that it's the conversation. It's We're not talking about all the different elements. Like, I don't know anything about car repair. The, the mechanics showing me what's going on with my transmission means nothing to me. It means absolutely nothing. My trust that this guy's been doing it for a guy who owns a car company around me, who owns a, a town car service, that speaks more volumes to me about being comfortable with him and trusting him. So I think that's the type of relationship advisors really need to have with their clients because if it's that old way of just going down the line, it's it's going to be a difficult conversation at some point. And that's the relationship we have with our, our advisory firms that we work with, too. It's very much a partnership, collaborative. Advisors are bombarded in multiple directions, growing their business, working with their clients, doing financial planning, examining estate planning, insurance planning, tax planning. A good advisor is solving a lot of problems for their clients, right? We come in partner with the advisor, act as a CM. We do the heavy lifting for them on all the investments. We'll do one-off case analysis with them. And when they have this client come in and here's a here's the problem they're trying to solve related to their investments and create a customized solution for them if need be. And it's based on, again, our overall multidimensional philosophy based on true diversification. And it is, as Matt said, narrowing the expected range of returns, which is what investors want. But it's a very collaborative relationship with our advisors. We partner with them and our goal is to help them be better advisors. And then they provide even better services to their end clients, which is what we're all here for. When you're creating these solutions for advisors, I would imagine you guys have given your general investment philosophy. You have a general approach, an investment framework, and then it gets somewhat tailored to the specific advisory groups. But I'm wondering how are those portfolios constructed? Say if you have an average portfolio that you could describe to us, would you have a bond fixed income like bucket, an equity beta bucket, and then an alternative bucket? Or are you attacking this from first principles and saying everything needs to be from an absolute return basis, its own independent entity? Yeah. Yeah. No, we love is 60-40 dead? We love 60-40. We have 60-40 in our model, right? That's the low-cost beta exposure to stocks and bonds, and we use low-cost ETFs for that, right? And then we'll have alternatives, sleeves, a sleeve approach, really, right? So we call it a strategic sleeve, which is stock bond low-cost beta based on the risk tolerance. It will depend on whether it's 60-40, 80-20, 20-80. And then we have our alternative sleeves, and we like to say we look at the alternatives to alternatives, we're not just looking at real estate or private equity or BDCs or things like that, right? We're looking at unique differentiators, unique risk reducers. All not alternatives, by the way. 
just to be clear. <laughs> yeah, you guys know that. You know that. Yeah. And that, Don't get us started on that one. Yeah. One of the things that we do from a philosophical standpoint is we try to ask the question on each investment is what is the return driver? What's going to drive the return of this investment? And is the driver of this investment similar to other drivers, right? And if real estate is driven by global economic growth or the growth of the economy that's there, that's a similar driver as what's driving the growth of an S&P 500 stock, right? So you're not getting necessarily the diversification that you might be getting versus if you had, you know, a trend following managed future strategy or a long short strategy or whatever, right? There's multiple a merger arbitrage strategy is a great alternative to a bond potentially and totally different drivers because the return driver of a merger arb strategy is, does that merger go through or not go through? That there are a lot of mergers happening, is there not a lot of mergers happening? That, that's not necessarily impacted by credit or default risk of bonds. Yeah, it's a sleeve approach to answer your question. And we try to balance things. We'll try to have a quant manager with a fundamental manager. If we can find a good technical analysis manager, we use them as well. And have multiple strategies, multiple disciplines balancing each other out. And it's not because we you know, can't decide which one we like better. That's not what it's about. It's we like them all. And that's the preparation over the predicting. How many buckets are we talking here? It's really three buckets, right? So, and we've changed the nomenclature a little bit because funds don't fit nice and neatly into buckets anymore and get into a little bit. It's a strategic bucket that's just low-cost cheap beta, right? ETFs, that's going to make up 40-ish percent of most portfolios. There'll be about 30% that's going to be in sort of high active share, active equity, fixed income managers, depends, and at some blend, depending upon their risk tolerance. And then 30 is going to be in something, investments that we consider alternatives. So whether that's your guys' fund, whether that's another managed futures fund, a multi-asset strategy, multi-asset strategies are where it gets a little weird because you've got the passive beta in there included, then you've got a managed future strategy on top or risk parity strategy on top, something that's a little bit different. So it's evolved a little bit, but that's the general idea. That 40-30-30 is a baseline. But again, it's really, we start with a philosophy and we want to tailor that to what an advisor. So one of our teams, for example, wanted, let me go back a second. So part of the reason you have to add the beta in there is because the client base that we, the client base our advisors work with, the high net worth individuals, absolute return strategies sound real nice to them, but the reality of owning them is just not feasible for most high net worth individuals. They succumb to the peer pressure of, oh, so-and-so did 20% this year and I only did six, forgetting that last year they might've been down 15 and they were up five, right? So any goodwill you get from that sort of goes out the window. And as we know, returns tend to be skewed to the upside. So over the long run, you get a lot less of those down 15 years than you do those up 10 or 15 years, especially recently. So at um, least for the sample size that we have, again, we it, it may be the case that we are in the throes of some kind of scenario inflection, some kind of shift in the paradigm, so to speak. Absolutely. Might not happen, but I think part of the challenge that we're all facing as managers, mm-hmm. as allocators, is to contemplate to paraphrase Mike's earlier point, right? what does the future hold, right? What is the problem that we could be facing and how do we attack it from a first principles approach? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But I'm I mean, gonna, again, getting fired up. Keep going. But when I get, I'm going to be like ultimate warring this thing. I'm like, I'm getting so fired up. I'm trying to stay calm. <laughs> Let's keep going. Advisors, 
the teams we work with, we're really lucky. The teams we work with are great and they're really collaborative. So we try and help them understand what risks are in their portfolio. So we could go out in the world and say they're at one of the custodians that has every investment option available to them, right? And we create the purest version of the model that we have. We can go through that with them, break down where their risk exposures are, understanding the, the ups and downs of the portfolio, where it might underperform, where it might outperform, and those things. And a lot of times, at times we tweak it from there, right? They may say, up here, we need to participate a little bit more. So we need a little bit more of that beta in there rather than a little bit heavier, the alternative. So we really want to be collaborative. We're not stodgy enough to say we've got it figured out. We think we have a really good philosophy that works. But again, I'm not Henry Ford. It's like, <laughs> you're not just getting black cars off the line, right? I'll give you the options that are out there. So no, we have uh, with that, we I'll have let to. Mike go dig in on whatever no, he wants. We have, to to, like, we have to. We would like to stay in business. So we have to engage in what's called bench marketing. Yeah. It's bench marketing. It's not benchmarking. Just, I got to hold it back. I feel like I'm Dr. Heckle, Mr. Jiving Dick. I, Alyssa, I'm just like, so there's this know whole thing where we're like, what's the objective function of the client? As Bradley, you so succinctly outlined at the beginning, we're trying to achieve some financial goals. Do they have any relevance to what stocks and bonds do necessarily? Not really. They could. But now we've got to do some bench marketing because you have a bias between some tracking error from you and your buddies and some esoteric, falsely calculated benchmark nonsense. It happens to, to have we done well. Exactly. <laughs> Self-regulating organizations help regulate themselves via these means in order to conduct business. So this is an emergent phenomenon that comes from where and how the structure of the industry manifests. That does not mean that you have to buy into it. If you would prefer to go away from bench marketing and go to what you might want to achieve in your portfolios, which I think we're all trying to do in a way that's acceptable behaviorally so people can stay disciplined and actually stick with it. But this is an objective function that we have to manage that if we didn't have to manage, we'd probably do things differently, but we have to factor it in. And the funny thing is the benchmarking changes if you're talking to an advisor or investor in Texas versus if you're talking to one in Silicon Valley. Benchmarking is different. Yeah. Now, as professionals, these are things that we have to engage in because we have to know the client. We have to understand their vulnerabilities. But make no mistake. It's bench marketing. I can't argue with that. I can't argue with it at all. And it's, I, I guess from our perspective, from my perspective, I won't speak for Brad, but I'll, I'll speak from my perspective of, I think we need to push people in the right direction yeah. without making it so uncomfortable that it's unownable or they shut you out like that, right? Like yeah. That's the part, the sweet spot. And it, it's one of the things that I, I remember in 2011, I was running a, some model portfolio, a large OSJ that was with LPL at the time. And we had about 250 advisors across the country running about 300 million for the firm. And our CIO comes out of nowhere and he's like, I want to add managed futures to the portfolio. Okay. 2011. All right. All right. That, okay. Let's, let's talk about what that looks like because we're getting pushed back on allocation funds that did phenomenal through 08, 09, right. And are lagging by three and 4% and we're getting hammered on those. And you want to introduce something that could by itself be down in a year where the market's up 20%. Do you know what my conversations with these advisors was like trying to fight that into the portfolio? And so 
part of how we build our portfolios on the OCIO side and part of how the fund's structured, and it, it's hiding the vegetables, right? Yeah. It's taking those Brussels sprouts and frying them up and putting something delicious on top of it because by themselves, they may be a little bit unpalatable. No one wants those boiled Brussels sprouts from childhood, right? You want the good stuff that's fried crispy and has something sweet on top. That's what you're looking for. And so by pairing managed futures approach or risk parity approach or any of these different alternative strategies with just baseline beta ends up being a more palatable approach. Is it the pure play where you get all of the benefits of the non-correlation? No, it's not. But it does allow you to take out that line item risk I was talking about earlier, where you're not seeing a, a fund that's down 10% or down 5% when the market's up double digits, because historically, that's more often the case than not. And yeah. it's you don't get paid for those five years in between before it pops. And we have and we have to account for that physical pain. What manifests is physical pain in tracking error. So whilst I'm pushing the point on benchmarking, I'm adjusting a little bit, but my jest is far less. And it's it is a real thing that we have to deal with. We as the professionals who are helping those who are helping the others, the actual asset owners. These are real things that we're faced with as objective functions within decision-making that are not purely economically functioning and not purely congruent with the economic academic literature. And they're perfectly valid, by the way, Matt, and I accept everything that you've said, and I say it's a hard yes, but it turns benchmarking into benchmarking, and we have I, to realize that. Yeah, it's. It, I think the it's like a... You're just constantly getting battered by the environment. And again, everyone on this call knows that every client that's watching any of the financial media is just getting hammered with the wrong stuff at every turn, right? And there has to just be some acceptance that as much as we're in that client's ear and as much trust as that advisor might have, you're in front of that client how often versus how long the television is on or CNN's on or the the quote of what the S&P 500 did is in their face versus... And you have to factor in their attention span as well. So the way that you're delivering the message, how long it's taking you to actually get the message across. One of the things that we often comment here is that there's optimal from a math perspective, like a mathematical optimality, and then there's behavioral optimality, right? Understanding how the zeitgeist is shifting and how perception is reality and it shapes it in a meaningful way. There's a reason why 6040 has become, in the minds of so many investors, the established portfolio, right? This cure-all, be-all, because the formative years of most allocators have been spent in the mother of all bull markets for the 6040 portfolio. So you have to contend with all that, deliver a message that's effective, but also punchy enough and salient in their minds so they can understand that there might be a problem that, that you're trying to solve and that there's a reason why you're trying to create a portfolio that's structured that way. I wonder if we might get a little bit into the specifics. I know you guys recently launched the fund, IMIX for short, or D-Y-M-I-X. And maybe this is a moment, probably should have done this 40 minutes ago, but to let everyone know or remind everyone that none of this is going to be investment advice, even though we are talking about a specific strategy that and Matt are managing. But we'd like to get a little bit into the specifics of this because we've talked about approaches. We've talked about investment universes. You guys allocate to third-party managers, you allocate to some of our funds, but we'd like to know a little bit how you guys attacked the problem in as much specificity as you guys are willing to go. So maybe let's set the stage. What's the strategy? What's the investment universe that you guys are using? 
Brad, why don't you tell the story, the genesis of how the fund, the ideation for creating the fund came up? Because I think that's a good story and sees it up. Yes, yeah, so the the strategy is so the mutual fund we launched August 1st. Yeah, the ticker symbol is D-Y-M-I-X. It's the dynamic alpha macro. And it we created it because... We were doing the OCIO and I, I have had in past investments in hedge fund strategies that did very well. And basically through the connections of the OCIO, diving into the operatings of mutual funds, we had the opportunity to say, can we turn this great hedge fund into a 40 act available fund? It was a few years ago, we presented um, the hedge fund strategy to a group of advisors and the advisors love the hedge fund strategy. It is non-correlated. It was a global macro fundamentally managed strategy by a team of economists, right? It's different, different than a quant strategy, different than trend following, not a black box algo inside another black box algo inside another black box algo, right? It, it, it's totally different. And the feedback we got from advisors was, this is wonderful. We love it. What's the ticker symbol? And the answer was, there is none. It's a private placement hedge fund structure, accreditation status, a lot of hoops to jump through. So what we did, it took us some time, was to figure out how can we turn this strategy into a 40-act fund available to individual investors. And what we found is by actually marrying that strategy with equities, right? And you guys coined the term return stacking, right? So there's definitely some of that in there as well. Whenever you utilize futures, a very efficient vehicle, you get some of that return stacking, but we married long only U.S. equities with this global fundamentally managed macro strategy that the correlation between the two was near zero. And what we found is that by marrying the two together, the was the saying, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? And that's what we found. And, and the reason is because of the dynamic alpha, as we coined it, right? When one's zigging, one's zagging, we have that opportunity to rebalance just in time for the one that's zigging to zag and the one that's zagging is zigging. If you follow the zigzag theoretical logic there, it's that rebalancing alpha, the dynamic alpha, being able to truly benefit from non-correlation. And we're able to do it in one fund very effectively and make it available to anybody and everybody that without accreditation status through a simple ticker symbol. We have a very simplistic view. I jokingly call it peanut butter and jelly. You love your peanut butter, it's great. You love your jelly, it's great, but you move it together and it's even better. And that's what the strategy is. It's two great things married together equal the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. That was the precipice for it. And uh, yeah, it's- And to be like, just to go into a little bit of the weeds here, the hedge fund strategy on its own uses a decent amount of leverage. It can be a little bit lumpy. And so owning it by itself is a tougher own than being able to own it with equities. So again, not only do we get that benefit of being able to capture the non-correlation by rebalancing between the two, which if you think about it, if you're a hedge fund investor, like how would you even be able to do that unless the manager's willing to do it for you? Because at the end of the day, <laughs> you might need to give 60, 90 days notice to get your cash out. So I, unless you can predict the future of what's gonna happen over the next 60 or 90 days, you're never going to know exactly whether or not you're actually selling high and rebalancing. There's just too much of a time lag between the two. So it's worked out rather nicely. We're excited for it. And it's been received pretty well. I, I, yeah. Not to mention the behavioral bias of, oh, we'll just, yeah. let, let's, going back to our other conversation, 
the idea of the advisor calling the individual and making this trade, the time lag, the probable cause of the, the individual asset owner saying, well, no, let's just ditch the one that's down and keep the one that's up. That's a shoe diversification. We were talking earlier, I think someone, I think those of you, Matt, that mentioned some of the different, like you should have something lagging in your portfolio. If it's all going up, you're not diversified. That's a, it's not a bug. That's the feature of diversification. Right. I want to it's jump up and down. Yes, there are things yeah. in your portfolio. And that's what gives you that opportunity yeah. to sell high and buy low, right? Yeah. Buy low, Rebound. sell high. Rebound. So we, we take that emotion out of it within the fund and yeah, we'll sell equities and we'll buy the futures or vice versa. And yeah. the, the understanding behind it, one of the things we really like about the strategy is that it is fundamental, almost story-based with within the global macro strategy. Sometimes alternatives can be hard to understand for investors, right? Trend following or intuition. There is no intuition, but let's circle back. We'll circle back to that. Keep going. Yeah. 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 One of the examples I always like to give an example of a, of, of, of a cloud, a hypothetical trade, right. Was in cocoa powder and cocoa futures. So a number of months back, the, the, uh, went long cocoa powder because of a El Nino weather pattern that was headed towards the Ivory Coast. And the local farmers in the Ivory Coast were already not applying the fertilizer well, right? So poor fertilizer application, bad weather is coming. That's going to drive up cocoa prices. So that's a, you could think about that and say, yeah, that makes sense. If the weather's going to be bad, if they're not using fertilizer, it appropriately by the application that's going to drive the crop isn't going to be good. And then the price is going to go up because the supply, basically a supply and demand imbalance. If you think back to econ 101 that most of us had, I would think you think of your demand and your supply curve. And when something gets out of whack, there's a supply demand imbalance. What eventually happens is you get back to equilibrium, right? And that's what the strategy attempts to do. Take advantage of price demand supply imbalances and because the strategy is story-based almost, right? That cocoa example, you can hear that and say, that makes sense. And then we would say, what does that have to do with Jerome Powell today? Maybe they should have been eating more chocolate and been a little happier, I don't know. But the mocha java trade, long cocoa, long, yeah. long sugar. Hey, it can work. And, and it it's a diversifier. It, it's a good diversifier. And sometimes somebody again in the back of the room will raise their hand and say, but Brad, we can just buy Hershey's or we can just buy Nestle's stock and that'll give us the chocolate exposure and not really because if you think oh, about it yeah because who's gonna buy the raw let's cocoa? let's dissemble that shall we yeah yeah as i <laughs> drooled, the number one one criteria is it making the chocolate bar or is it delivering the chocolate bar delivering the cocoa via right. oil and gas and natural gas at the production facility and the production and then trucking it to the places that it needs to be trucked you thought it was a cocoa thing Oh, yeah. 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 You thought they owned cocoa farms, huh? Yeah. What was the distribution contract like? Let's go through Coca-Cola and sugar and the Coca-Cola contract between Warren Buffett and and Coke distributing. Not to mention that you're capturing a portion of the commodity, but what you're really exposed to really is equity beta. You're exposed to the equity markets and then you're getting a little bit of the upside. It's the whole thing when you're buying a miner as opposed to buying the underlying metal or an oil and gas company versus buying crude oil, gasoline futures or any one of those. So is the hedge fund strategy, is that the universe? Is that a futures-based universe exclusively? Yes. 100% futures-based. Yeah. Uh, Global, macro, long, short. How many futures are we talking 
45, I believe, total is the universe. If I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Our marketing deck says 40 plus, but I, I'm pretty sure it's 45 sure. is the number. Yeah. Um, You're monitoring the health of the markets. We have cattle as well in part of our marketing materials, but they have recently been benched because liquidity just wasn't there. So yeah. these are things that you have to consider. So you, you give people a range, but it, it, it's never going to be a, a precise. Right. You might have two names in there that you, it's very unlikely you're actually going to touch. And again, I don't want to get too much into the holdings that we have had, but it tends to be a pretty concentrated strategy. It tends to be three to six teams on that side that are operating at one time. And they all tend to be really, the return stream overall has been non-correlated to equities. Let's put it that way. But plays on any given time might look look more correlated or less correlated. It's to our conversation earlier of thinking about, is it the asset class or the underlying asset, or is it the strategy or the manager? And this is one of those situations where it's really a little bit of both, but mostly let's look at two return streams and see how they relate to each other and whether the combination of those two can lead to something really great. And that's and that it provides, what we found. It, it provides a little bit more opportunity for some of the intuition to build Right. I think we were talking about that earlier in this. And there's just not if the, the equity sleeve of this portfolio, if the S&P is up, it's likely going to be up. If the S&P is down, it's likely going to be down. And the, I think that is a little bit of what people fall prey to in the benchmarking side of things is that I see the market stocks were up, bonds were down. I have a sense of whatever I did, whether it was value or whether I was capturing an extra 60 or 100 basis points trying to capture momentum. I know how I did. Now transition to 45 different markets, long or short, across various <laughs> sectors. You don't have any intuition. The intuition don't worry, Brad's is- out there calculating daily what our <laughs> NAV is going to be at the end sure. of the day. And Brad has intuition. Brad has intuition. But to your point, the universe that we're in and with your guys' fund and a lot of the other funds that people have used are in the return stack models you guys demonstrate. Like It's great to see at the end of the day that all of us are in different places, right? Some of us may be directionally the same. Some of us might be directionally opposite. The magnitude is certainly different of those returns, but it goes to that same idea that like, once you're indoctrinated in this idea of owning non-correlated assets, it's special to add more of them. In general, there's no one that's going to be representative of them. It's not owning a return bond fund and knowing that it's going to give you generally the same direction every other total return bond fund. It's a completely different uh, idea. Why? Advisors struggle to do it because so long they've been pitched, find the best in class fund and use that for your sleeve. And that's just not applicable in our in our correct. And it's a and it's a challenge. And it's a challenge, I think, that we attempt to try to provide an information around in order to help facilitate the intuition, Absolutely. to help yeah. facilitate the learning and understanding so that you can have that long-term ownership and long-term rebalancing that creates the tailwind for the asset owner, enhances return, decreases risk, increases the risk-adjusted returns, and provides a better outcome at the end of the day for the asset owner as they're in withdrawal of their portfolio or whatever it is that they're trying to achieve. And it's critical. And so I joke around about benchmarking. I joke around about the tracking error as we have today. And we'd be like, oh gosh, oh, if we're all robots. But I suppose that's our opportunity. We should embrace the fact that the world is not all robots. And that therein lies the opportunity for people to make mistakes. And when we're talking about alpha, we're talking about capitalizing on the mistakes of others. And so as much as I'm trying to push people in this direction... 
I don't want too many people in this direction. Just enough people in the direction <laughs> so we can all, you know, profit enough for our particular tribes who happen to embrace the opportunity that has presented us with this. I, I love it. Over to you. Yeah, and that's the beauty, right? It's because the, the, there's different methodologies. And, and as Matt said, our performance has been uncorrelated, right? You, you, we compare our performance to your performance to some of the other ones that we love and follow and recommend. It's kind of fun to look at the end of the day and, and wait an hour and a half after close and say, okay, how did everybody do? And it's with some of the ETF products, it's a little easier because they're priced every as you go, so to speak. But they're really all non-correlated. Even you know, managed futures trend followers can be non-correlated amongst themselves, right? And yeah. given that we're a fundamental global macro strategy, that the strategy itself is different. You guys might be long cocoa as well, but for different reasons, oh, right? Yeah. And that's shorter. Okay. I don't know. It might be <laughs> yeah. shorter, right? And we might not have it at all now. So there's it's different approaches, right? It's like directions, right? If we're all trying to go to the Costco down the street, but I'm going to make a left and you're going to make a right, we might get there at the same time. It's just, I might hit some potholes that you don't hit. You'll hit different potholes that I don't hit. And the beauty of investing portfolio is we're all in the same car, right? And you might hit potholes at different times. And then it, that helps create that kind of even evenness out for the investor's experience. And Look, that's non-correlation doesn't mean negative correlation, right? There'll be times when our type of strategies are up when the market's up and we might be down when the market's up and we might be down when the market's down, right? It's The whole non- point is that the correlation against the benchmark is not static. It is rolling up and down over time. That's definitely one of the things that we put forward as one of the values of our strategies is that sometimes there's a bull market in equities. Oftentimes mm-hmm. there is, and we can participate in that. When that happens, we're going to have a higher correlation to the SPOOs or, or to the mm-hmm. NASDAQ. But then there's going to be moments when it doesn't really behoove us to be in equities as much, and that correlation will dip closer to zero. And then more recently, we've had positions where we've been short the equity markets, and so our correlation will dip into negative territory. So it's about, but I, I can't help. I want to dig deeper. I want to, you guys are talking about the on the alpha strategy. Positions can be as concentrated as maybe only having three outstanding positions yeah. at a given, a given moment in time. It can be as many as 15 or 16 out of that universe of three oh, no. plus. It's going to be like three to six themes. Total investments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty, yeah. It's, so, it's a concentrated strategy. You, you've given us just enough to keep the curiosity alive. I want to give a little, I want to dig a little deeper. You say narrative based, it's storytelling. There must be a little bit more method to that madness. You guys are probably oh, looking at yeah. different signals. How much can you guys share? How much are you willing to well, share? I Give mean, us a little bit more of the goods. It's a fundamental approach. It's the same funnel you've seen a thousand times, it's right? Your, you start yeah. with the entire universe and you start filtering out for areas where you could, might see imbalances for one fundamental reason or another. And then he starts doing more technical analysis to find out whether or not there's opportunity from a price momentum standpoint. So there is an aspect of technical, but it's all driven at, the, at a fundamental supply and demand imbalance is where everything comes from. It's that same idea, taking the universe of 45 potential investments, finding the opportunities that might be there, refining those down, and then weighting in what he's most confident in versus least confident in across those themes. So the old commodities, commodities, do you have any equity futures, bond futures? Yep. Yeah, he can be short the market while we're long the market. He could be short bonds while we're in the portfolio, whatever. He can do anything he wants on the long and short side in any of those markets. And how does sizing take place? Are you guys conviction sizing? Is there any kind of inverse volatility? So this is going back to your return stream discussion. I'm sorry, Brad, if you want to take that. No, go ahead. Yeah, going back to the return streams, like when we 
when Brad came up with the idea and did all the testing on this, it was taking the return stream of his program versus the return stream of the equity bucket that we use, right? And blending those together. So we just let him run the same strategy at a slightly lower leverage ratio than he would run if you were running it straight as a hedge fund. So that's really the only difference. Yeah. So to answer, I do know there is some conviction sizing, right? So the the stories, as I say, or the the fundamental cases, the the demand supply imbalances, the, the the strongest convictions will have a stronger weight, right? And and the positions they are, there is diversification within there to try to create some non-correlation even within those those future contracts and the the position sizing and the themes and the 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 cocoa example is one example, but it might be long gold for totally different fundamental reasons, right? And, and it's an example. The key is. That's yeah. Exa- Those are examples. Those are examples, right? And we yeah. use that one because the story is so salient, right? Like it's such an easy story to tell, right? If he were long gold, that's a much more difficult situation to tell because the supply and demand really isn't. It's not necessarily supply and demand in the traditional sense of people aren't buying all this jewelry. That's not the cause of gold going up or down at a given time. I guess it's part of it, but there's many other issues there. And so some of those stories are harder to tell, but we try and find a couple of themes that are going on in the portfolio that are much easier to tell. Because if we can get those talking points in the hands of advisors to tell their clients, it gets them a little bit more comfortable with understanding what's going on with with recognizing that the individual investor is going to have a hard time understanding how these strategies actually work under the hood. But if you can give them some ideas about, hey, that cocoa example, like how is that going to be correlated to your regular SPY holdings or your ag holdings? It's a totally different bucket and they can understand it a little bit. I think that's so key, Matt, is that the market participants in the cocoa market, in the grain market, in the sofer market, they are different participants than are in the S&P 500 market. They have different supply and demand constraints and opportunities. This is what provides the diversification. This is what provides those. And there's different market dynamics in wheat. Is it winter wheat? Is it you know spring wheat? There are a number of different things occurring which provide the opportunity for diversification, just like the individual securities in, in your portfolio but they're not dominated by this one overarching equity beta component. That's the key to providing robust diversification. That's the feature. It's not a bug. It's the feature. Anyway, this is important to understand that key concept. And then the managers looking for the potential for supply and demand dynamics that will be out of balance, that will require a new equilibrium. That new equilibrium results in a new price from point A to point B. It would like to be on the right side of that transition from point A to point B. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and, and it's different return drivers. Again, it's in, in, in the strategy in the fund, there's multiple drivers of return. And there will be times that we're wrong and that didn't drive the right direction. But that's why there is diversification. That's why there's sizing. That's why there's risk management on on, on that side. And but that again is diversification, right? It's not everything is going to work, but that's why you have different drivers of return, as we say. And then when we talk about the beta side of the portfolio, we talk about U.S. equity beta. Is it global? Yeah. Do you guys? It's U.S. It's it's, it's US. all U.S. Yeah, it's all U.S. Okay. We we do break it down between a balance between growth, growth equity, kind of core blend equity, and then dividend dividend focused equity, just to get a 
a good balance between the two and allow us to rebalance even with inside the equities. And when flows are coming in, it allows us to add to maybe dividend stocks are not doing as well as growth stocks or vice versa. And then we can dynamically add to the areas that can be most beneficial over over time by that rebalancing effect. But the Certainly goal is the to biggest. kind of keep it a balance. We're not making an overbet and say, yep, tech stocks are going to be better or dividend stocks are going to be better. We try to keep it a balance, an even balance between the two and just rebalance accordingly. But if you think of the two halves of the portfolio with the macro strategy over here and the equity strategy over here, the big correlational benefits between those two. But even inside of the equity bucket, we do have a little bit of benefit between the growth side and the value side, right? So whether it's a value dividend strategy or something like that, if those are down, we can add to those a little bit more to bring them back up or to try and average down our costs there. There's a little bit of diversification benefit there, but it's really just allowing us to have a couple of extra tax lots to potentially play with at the end of the year uh, or rebalance between if there's the opportunity to do that at some point. If we got some, had we started January of this year, our growth stuff would have been up 20 plus percent. Our value stuff's going to be flat. So there would be some opportunity there to load up that value side. Again, not knowing whether or not it's going to be beneficial or that that trend continues where growth just continues to kill value. But at the end of the day, again, buying things cheaply generally works out. So, yeah. Love it. Oh, it makes Love sense. It. Guys, you've, you've given us an hour of your time. I think it's been an amazing hour, and I want to leave people wanting more. So I want the mm-hmm. opportunity to circle back with some more stuff. Absolutely. So it's dynamicalphasolutions.com. It is yeah. Bradbury, uh, Matt O'Brien. What are your social media? Yeah, if you um, want to share the screen. if Sure. Amy, Amy can share the screen. So there's our contact information. Given that it is Halloween and the theme was fear no market, we do have this one with Jack Lanners back here. Love it. We do Good have hands. lots of dynamic alpha solutions and dynamic alpha macro fund branded M&Ms. So if anybody <laughs> wants some Halloween candy, please email us and uh, we'll be happy to send them. Otherwise, Matt and I are stuck eating all these M&Ms. But uh, feel free to email us with questions. Again, dynamicwg.com is our main website. Brad at dynamicwg.com or Matt at dynamicwg.com is the best way to get a hold of us. We're on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, please email us, mention M&Ms, and we'll send you a bunch. And fear no market. And fear no market. great, guys. Thank you for coming. Really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, we'll have to get you guys back for an update on the strategy and how everything's going on your end. Thanks again, everyone, for watching. Please smash that like button. Subscribe to the channel. Share so we can get great guests like Brett and Matt back on the show. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again. And see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global 
Explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Dash Masterclass.